This podcast is sponsored by Talkspace. May is Mental Health Awareness Month, and Talkspace, the leading virtual therapy provider, is encouraging people to talk it out in therapy. By talking or texting with a supportive, licensed therapist at Talkspace, you'll gain insights, discover truths, and experience breakthroughs that will improve how you live and how you feel. With Talkspace, just answer a few questions online, and you'll be matched with a therapist. And because you'll meet your therapist online, you don't have to take time off work or arrange childcare. You'll meet on your schedule, whenever you feel most at ease. Plus, Talkspace works with most major insurers, and most insured members only pay a $25 copay or less. No insurance? No problem. If you want to make progress toward a mentally healthier place, Talkspace is here for you. Now get $80 off your first month with promo code SPACE80 when you go to Talkspace.com. Match with a licensed therapist today at Talkspace.com. Save $80 with code SPACE80 at Talkspace.com. Lisa Childers here. Our culture is changing at a rapid rate. And how can we as Christians navigate these waters and help our kids learn how to influence culture rather than let the culture change them? Well, today's guest has launched a brand new ministry for young people. And he's also written a new book that addresses topics like addiction, gender identity, pornography, hookup culture, racial tension, and consumerism. We're going to talk about it on today's podcast. My guest today was the Student Impact Director at Stand to Reason for 14 years. He has worked with junior high, high school, and college students for over 18 years. He speaks all over the country and has worked with groups like Summit Ministries, Campus Crusade for Christ, InterVarsity, Saddleback Church, and Biola University. He has his bachelor's degree in Christian education with a master's degree in philosophy of religion and ethics from Talbot School of Theology. And he just launched a brand new ministry called Maven, and you can find their website at maventruth.com, M-A-V-E-N truth.com. So Brett Kunkel, welcome to the podcast. Thanks for being on today. Oh, it's a pleasure to be on with you, Elisa. I love what you're doing. <laughs> well, thanks so much. And, uh, you know, you have a new book out called A Practical Guide to Culture, which you co-wrote with John Stone Street. And I've read it. It's amazing. Everybody needs to go out and get it. In fact, I wrote a review of it on my blog, which listeners can find at elisachilders.com. And I said in my review that this is the kind of book that makes you want to go buy a case and just give it out to everybody that you meet. Um, it's just... It's Wait, Wait, so, could, could you repeat yes, that? Yes, yes. Could you just repeat that? I, just, everyone, I think everyone in the audience really ought to hear that. Yes, just, you uh, need to get a Costco-sized case of this book and give it out to everybody. You know, in fact, I get asked a lot when I'm teaching apologetics in churches, people will inevitably ask me, what's the best first apologetics book to get? And I had one that I would always kind of say. And after I read A Practical Guide to Culture, even though it's not your typical apologetics book in that you're covering philosophical arguments for the existence of God and things like that, but it's so 
practical, as the title says. It takes controversial topics like consumerism, addiction, entertainment, racial tension, homosexuality, pornography, and many more. And it really helps the reader to understand the Christian worldview and to really live out God's truth in a culture that's really kind of not on the same page with biblical teaching. So I'm just uh, curious to hear you talk about the book. What inspired you to write it? And maybe tell us a little bit about your approach to some of these hot topics. Yeah, I tell people there are five reasons that I wrote this book. Uh, here are the five reasons. Alexis, Micah, mm-hmm. Paige, Ella, Jonah. Right? Mm-hmm. Those, are, those are my five kids. And actually, I would say uh, a sixth reason has been added in the last couple of weeks. Yes. My oldest daughter had our first grandchild, which yes. is wild and amazing and crazy. Uh, we're My wife and our very young grandparents. I know. Um, we got married young. We had kids young. Our oldest daughter got married young. She's having kids young. So we're, you know, we're early 40s um, and grandparents. But uh, I'm thinking, actually, this is great because this is going to this is going to keep me in, you know, the the uh, the world of youth for quite a long time. Now that I'm starting to have great. Yeah, there aren't a lot of kids that are able to say they go surfing with grandpa. <laughs> That's right. That's right. <laughs> exactly. So, um, so those are the reasons why. Because I I know that my primary obligation uh, is to disciple my own kids, mm. and I've spent the last 25 years or so also working with young people in the church, 11 years in local church ministry, uh, the last 14 years with Stan Reason and now Maven. Mm-hmm. And so, um, but even though I'm working with young people, uh, you know, around the country and my primary obligation is my five kids. So this is, this is what motivates me to do what I do, because at the end of the day, uh, I want to be faithful in discipling my own kids. Mm. But there are a lot of things that I've learned that my wife and I have learned through trial and error, through experience, uh, through thinking carefully about these things, through the study of scripture, all of that, uh, that we've learned that we, you know, that I've, I want to pass on to others. Mm. Uh, you know, and so that was, that's, that's kind of what inspired me, but I've always had you know, I, I've had a foot in the church. I think this is this is the benefit of, of of starting in the local church, starting ministry in the local church, rather than you know at a parachurch organization. Mm-hmm. Is it uh, it kept me connected with the local church? It gave me insight into just you know day in day out ministry. Uh, I mean, if you think about it, uh, the local church is still. God's plan A to reach the world. Right. It's also his, his plan B and plan C. I mean, there is no plan B and plan C, right? It's the local church. It's the body of Christ. That is the primary avenue through which, uh, you know, God is reconciling the world into himself. So the, the, the church is primary. And, uh, and this is, I think, is important to, to point out because sometimes those of us who are in the apologetics world or part of the apologetics tribe, we sometimes make it frustrated with the local church. Uh, we may resonate more with a nonprofit apologetics organization. And, um, and we may sometimes want to kind of bypass the the church and that's just not an option. Yeah. So, so this shapes part of my approach to these kinds of things. Cause I, I know that the vast majority of people in our local churches, they're not, they're not as, uh, they're not as academically oriented as many of us. 
Right. Right. I, I love to read, to listen to podcasts, to, uh, you know, to do educate education, all of that, that good stuff, which is important. And of course I want to raise the bar in the church that is often anti-intellectual on this, but I also know that the vast majority of uh, people in the church aren't going to be, you know, uh, doing a PhD or writing a dissertation or diving into these things the way maybe you or I would. And so we can actually, I think, serve the church better by being very practical in our approach. Mm. And so that, that, that has, and so I think being in the church for 11 years made me realize the, the, how important it is to, to translate this stuff uh, to translate the the apologetics and the worldview material that we think is so important for people to grasp. Well, we got to translate that. I've seen time and time again, people listen to a talk or uh, get exposed to worldview and apologetic material. And it's, it's so high level, it's not translated well, that they end up thinking mistakenly that this stuff is just not even relevant for them to even know. And, uh, you know, and so sometimes, you know, I, rather than just saying, well, that's the fault of the person, they're just not at the level they need to be. We also want to say, well, no, sometimes that's the fault of the communicators. And so what we want to do is I think be really good tr at translating this stuff. And that's what we try to do in this book is translate well, communicate well to the, to, to the church, because that's our primary audience, parents, leaders, pastors, Sunday school teachers, youth group leaders, all of that. And uh, so take this stuff, not dumb it down, but translate it, make it accessible to people, and then also show them why it matters and help them to implement it. And that's where the practical stuff comes in. That's why we include lots of different practical ideas and steps, uh, things that you can, you can turn around and do with your kids immediately. So that is some of the stuff that, you know, that I think about and that shapes me and shapes John and I's, uh, you know, kind of approach to this book. Yeah, and you did do a fantastic job of bringing all of these controversial topics into the practical realm for the average Christian, because I think that a lot of Christians, they know that they're living in a culture that has certain ideas about sexuality and pornography and, and uh, entertainment and all these things, but they sometimes just maybe don't know how to practically apply what they believe to how they live. And I, I love the, the example in your book when you were talking about culture you tell the story of when you went to have ice cream with your kids and you observed a mom who was taking pictures of her kids eating ice cream and, you know, posting them on Instagram or something like that. And, and you were observing that this is something that culture has influenced and, and you define culture and how that influences us and how we influence it. And I, you know, I've just, that so resonated with me because as a mom, I've been there, I've been at the ice cream shop and you're looking around and everybody's just got their phones out taking pictures of their kids eating ice cream. And it just seems kind of, you know, it's, it's like, it's just culture. It's just what we do as culture. Um, so, so with examples like that, you know, what, what are some ways that Christian parents can be aware of the influences of our culture and be intentional in encouraging healthy behaviors in their kids? Yeah, well, the, you're absolutely right. I mean, just culture is what we, we swim in. In fact, we use the analogy, uh, you know, culture is for human beings what water is for fish. It's just the environment in which we live and move and have our being. We can't help but live in culture. 
but that's why it's so important then to think carefully about it because it shapes us whether we're conscious of its influence or not and and therefore it's very powerful uh, so if we don't examine and engage the the the, crown, uh, the the culture around us, I mean, it may not even occur to us that the world should be any different. Okay. Yeah. Now, here's the difference between us and fish: is that we we make our own environment, we make our culture. We're actually part of building the very world that we inhabit. So, on the flip side, this gives us, you know, as followers of Christ, an extraordinary opportunity. We can make the world around us. We can shape and influence the culture mm-hmm. around us. We can be active creators. We can uh, work with God in culture building, and that can bring about great good for the glory of God. Mm-hmm. And I think it's important for us to talk about it, it, culture in those ways, because oftentimes I think Christians kind of take this very reductionistic approach or view of culture, right? We reduce culture to all the bad stuff that's out there in the world. So culture is, uh, you know, hip hop music Mm -hmm. or culture is the, uh, the PG 13 and rated R movies that are filled with, you know, sex and violence and language and, and all that stuff. And, and it's godless Hollywood and on and on and on. And of course, we would agree that, I mean, that is, those things are part of culture. But that's not the whole story of culture, right? So this reduces it to all the bad stuff. And then what happens is that many Christians have this posture where they are constantly against anything and everything that we call culture. But, you know, so this view, it, it fails to recognize that you simply find culture wherever you find human beings. It's not just all the bad stuff out there. It's what we make of the world. In fact, uh, I think we, we, you know, we quote from, uh, oh gosh, his name just uh, skipped my mind. Oh, Andy Crouch, right? He's got this great book um, on culture making. But culture is simply what we make of the world. So it includes the good and bad stuff. Mm -hmm. It includes all our ideas it includes our the institutions that we build, the structures that we build, the habits, the you know lifestyles. It includes all of that, and so when we realize uh, that we have a kind of a, I think a proper view of culture, we understand that there are good, bad, ugly you know parts of culture. It's not all bad. It's not all good. In fact, this is where and and I think this is one of the really helpful things in our approach to culture is to take a a worldview approach. And um, to carefully think about culture and to, to, number one, be grounded in the Christian worldview. And this is where in the book we talk about how Christians need to make a distinction between our current cultural moment that we're living in and the larger Christian story. Mm. Right? Well, there's, this, there's this larger Christian story that's been unfolding it's what we call the, you know, it's the story of, uh, of the world. It's a story of reality. This is the, uh, the true story of what's going on. Mm-hmm. And that story started, you know, before, uh, you know, 2017, that story has been going on for thousands of years and, and it's unfolding and we're just a small part of that story. And, and, and sometimes we get so wrapped up in our cultural moment that, uh, we, we, we fail to pull ourselves out and realize there's a larger story that's going on. Um, this, I mean, this helps us on a number of levels. Number one, it, it helps us not to despair. Right. Uh, sometimes I hear Christians 
just d- despair so much over where the culture is heading. And I, and I understand because I, there are times when uh, I, I struggle with that as well. In fact, when we, when I was writing this book on, and doing my work on this book, uh, there were moments of kind of you know, diving into the culture for weeks at a time, looking at stats, looking at the different trends, doing my research. And there were times where I'll be honest, it was, there were moments of despair (laughs) because I was so focused on the cultural moment. And I, yeah, I I think one of the most depressing things to write about was pornography Mm. and, uh, the, the, the porn epidemic that's out there that just, is uh, devastating young people. And, and we just don't even, I think, have an idea right now of, of how bad it is and, and it's going to get. So you look at that that particular instance in our particular cultural moment and you can despair. And so what I had to do is pull myself out of that and realize, okay, this is this is not the whole story. It doesn't, the story doesn't begin and end with this moment. No, there was, a, there's a, a much greater beginning and there's a much better ending in the Christian story of reality, right? Yeah. And this is where we 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 kind of divide it up in four parts, which is not unique to us. Lots of people talk about this, but I think it's a very helpful structure where you look at the Christian story uh, broken into these four kind of acts, if you will, creation, right? The creation uh, that, uh, of the world, of the universe, of all good things by God. And when he creates, it's all good. Then you have the fall, uh, where the fall of man uh, breaks the world, then you have uh, redemption, which is you know kind of the the act that we're in. God is redeeming us as individuals um, and uh, redeeming uh, you know cultures and re- redeeming the world and, and reconciling it back to Him. And ultimately, though, we know that uh, there's a final act where He will uh, restore all things. So restoration, mm-hmm. and what that does is. that helps us to realize there's this larger story going on. God is sovereign. Despair is a horrible strategy, even when it, you know, gets bad, even when things look tough and difficult. And that ultimately there's hope. There's hope that Christ is continuing to work even through the brokenness and the wickedness of humanity. Uh, And so I think that, that those kind of things are, are important for us to think about as we, you know, we we approach culture. We think about culture, and we think about how then do we influence the culture and raise our kids in that culture. Yeah, and that was one of my favorite things about the book was it's it's what you called hope casting, and it's you know basically what you just described, keeping our eyes on the bigger story and reminding ourselves that God's story continues to play out all around us, and that really does help uh, keep us from losing hope as we see our culture go in certain directions and. So obviously you have a heart to equip the next generation. You've been in youth ministry for uh, almost two decades. And uh, just tell us what first inspired you to study apologetics and take the intellectual side of your faith more seriously. Yeah, I grew up in the church. When I was uh, a baby, my mom and dad came to Christ, and uh, and they were just on fire, and we plugged into the local church. So I had the just the huge blessing of growing up in the church. Uh, I think that for me, that was a huge blessing. I had great experiences in the local churches that I were, that I was involved with. And, um, uh, so, so grew up in healthy, you know, healthy church life, a great mom and dad, uh, 
became a uh, when I got into junior high and high school, got involved with uh, youth ministry at my local church, and was very involved in youth ministry. In fact, I became a student leader, and uh, I would I would say looking back, I was. I was kind of what you considered the the model Christian kid, if you will. Mm-hmm. Uh, you know, involved in student leadership, committed to Christ. Uh, my youth pastor could count on me for anything. In fact, my junior year in high school, I made a decision to to go into full time vocational ministry. Right, and um, it was my freshman year in college. After having the, you know, growing up in the church for the first 18 years of my life, my freshman year in college, I was at a local community college in Southern California. I took a class, Philosophy 101. And that is where uh, my philosophy professor, Dr. David Lane, uh, spent that semester dismantling my faith. You know, and it wasn't, Professor Lane was not the, sometimes that stereotypical, skeptical professor that we, we, we put up on the screen, you know, in the, in the Christian world, he was not angry. He was not, um, vitriolic. Uh, he wasn't looking at for every moment to come after me, the Christian. Now I know that there are some professors like that, but he wasn't. In fact, I think he was more dangerous than those, right. um, because he was winsome. Mm-hmm. He was, uh, he was actually one of the most popular professors at this community college, he was charismatic. Uh, he was a surfer, so that you know that was extra points for uh, you know in my in my book, and and he was thoughtful, and he just he just but he directly challenged me, and but he did I would say he he challenged me in a winsome way, and uh, but he, he he challenged me and he dismantled me in class. There were times where he would directly challenge a you know particular aspect of Christianity and. There, there were times where he would give me the first shot at it. He, I, there were times where it seemed like he was trying to be fair-minded. And so he said, you know, Brett, you're, you know, we know you're a Christian, so how would you respond to this particular objection? Mm-hmm. <laughs> and often I, I, w- I would have no clue. I, I, this is the first time I'm hearing these things, so I hadn't, I'd never thought about any response to some of these objections. And so I, I, I was kind of tired of getting embarrassed <laughs> in this <laughs> class. And so what I would do is I, I'd go to his office afterwards and try to debate him in the privacy of his office. And that was just even worse. Mm. And there was one time where he had me pull out a Bible and he spent like a good hour going through, uh, the synoptic gospels with me and, uh, having me write down the discrepancies in the resurrection accounts. And this is something I, in the church, I never heard of this before. I, I didn't even realize that uh, there were these differences in Matthew and Mark and Luke's accounts. And I, I sat there just in stunned silence mm. in his office. Cause I mean, here it was right in front of my face. Here's the PhD, the smart guy showing me that my Bible has errors in just, just the resurrection story. Mm. And I remember walking across the college campus that day to my car to go home. And, and I was, I, I was shaken uh, and almost physically shaking because I thought this is, I mean, this is, this is real. This is, this is huge. If he's right, then this seems to have serious implications for, for my faith and for Christianity. Um, and, uh, so that, that is then what got me into apologetics because I started, I just started asking people in my church questions and there were some, who, who had no ability to help me. 
I, I mean, I got the response like, well, you, you know, Brett, you just have to have faith. Well, I just have to have faith. What does that mean? Like it, it, you can't answer any of these questions. So I just have to have faith. So I got to kind of throw my mind out. And this was deeply unsatisfying to me as it is to most young people who are being challenged. And, but I did find, um, some people who introduced me to apologetics and, uh, you know, one, actually one of the very first books that was given to me was a book called Scaling the Secular City by J.P. Moreland. Oh, and yeah. uh, Moreland is, of course, Moreland is one of my favorite uh, philosophers and apologists. Yeah, uh, he's had a too. significant influence in my life. Yeah, he's, he's great. But I, and I was able to study uh, under Moreland uh, doing my MA in philosophy at Talbot. But I, I looked at that book and I started kind of going through it. And I was, I was lost. I mean, it was so... For me at that point, as a young college student, it was so deep and, and technical. And um, But I, I realized, oh, okay, gosh, this guy, at least he sounds really smart. He seems to know his stuff. Okay, so there's some smart guys on our side. And this began to open up that whole the whole world of apologetics to me. And I realized and I discovered that there's this incredible wealth of resources, apologetic resources. There are questions, these questions aren't unique to me. We, you know, Christians have been defending the faith for 2000 years now. And, but the tragedy was that I had grown up in the church and for the first 18 years of my life, I had no uh, clue that there was this, you know, wealth of knowledge and that we had the ability to defend the faith. So that is what led me to start studying apologetics and to really, um, uh, really dive much deeper into my faith. And so I was actually doing youth ministry at the time. I just, it was, uh, an intern at my church. I was doing junior high ministry and I was, I started thinking, Oh my gosh, uh, that the, these kids that I'm working with, they were me four or five years ago and they're going to be me, you know, four or five years from now in a college classroom getting smashed by a professor. And so I started just, as I was learning apologetics, I started teaching it. And I'm sure when I first started teaching it, it was just horrible, you know, <laughs> but, but I realized, Hey, these students need to know this stuff. They need to be equipped. They need to know, uh, you know, the justification for their faith. They need to be able to give a reason for the hope that's in them. Yeah. So that's really what, uh, it was, it was great having an outlet to be able to teach because that forced me to learn the apologetics. Well, mm-hmm. um, you know, there's nothing like, there's nothing to help facilitate learning in your own life than having to teach something, right? right. And uh, so that really helped me, and, and it also helped me to translate because I'm, I'm now I'm having to take, you know, material from J.P. Moreland and translate it for a seventh grade squirrely little boy, you know. <laughs> so uh, it was great training. Yeah, and you don't just teach the kids uh, apologetics as you have been for for so many years, but you also started uh, a series of mission trips with young people to Berkeley and to Utah uh, that really kind of brings all of that teaching and training into um, reality, I would say. So tell us about uh, how these trips got started and a little bit about what goes on during one of these trips and what the main focus of uh, the mission is on, on these particular trips that you take these youth to Berkeley and Utah. Yeah, the reason I do these trips with young people is because this this kind of trip 
had a huge experience or a huge impact on me as I experienced it. I was an undergrad at Biola University. Well, eventually I transferred to Biola University from the community college and finished up my undergrad there. But one of my roommates uh, or dorm mates invited me on a spring break mission trip, and it was a spring break mission trip to Utah. So I started attending these trainings, and uh, the guy who's training us is is training us in theology. And I remember some of the first uh, training sessions were just all on the Trinity. And it was, I hadn't had this kind of deep, rich theological teaching and training before. And I was learning all kinds of things. And then I go up to Utah and I'm scared out of my mind because basically what he did was put us in situations where he had to talk to Mormons. And yet that challenge, uh, the training and then being challenged and then, you know, then engaging, I, it, grew, it grew me so much in uh, not just my knowledge, but then my my passion for the truth. It has just a profound influence on me. And so I realized, oh my gosh, this is an incredible experience. And uh, how can I do this with my young people? So eventually when I started doing high school and college ministry, I started taking my uh, ministries to, uh, to Utah on these, on these Utah mission trips. And then when I joined Santa Reason, I thought, well, gosh, I can do this with other groups. And so we started doing Utah mission trips. In fact, the very first mission trips I led through my work at Santa Reason was with uh, Jim Wallace, Jay Warner Wallace. Mm-hmm. Uh, when he was a youth pastor here in Southern California, we got connected. I started taking his groups to Utah. He said, hey, these things have just had such a huge impact on our group. And so Jim was the, uh, the one who kind of sparked the idea for a an apologetics type trip because on Utah we're going and we're having more conversa- theological conversations, right? And mm-hmm. uh, conversations on scripture. And he said, okay, so we've done a couple of these, but can you put together the same kind of experience and trip where we would engage more apologetics and philosophy and how to think. And he had some students in his youth ministry who had gone to Berkeley, uh, uh, UC Berkeley. And so he said, hey, like, take us to Berkeley or something. We can connect with those students. And Berkeley, of course, is a radical place. Right. And so let's go the you know, the craziest place in the U.S. And, and do it there. So that's where then I put together the Berkeley missions experience, which is more apologetically focused. And the idea behind the trips um, is really to put young people in situations that, number one, challenge them, um, but that forced them then to to talk about this stuff. It's you know it's the idea that, that we need to get this stuff out of the classroom and into real life because ultimately apologetics. One of the purposes of apologetics is to uh, serve the gospel in evangelism. And so, but if you, if that if that if you're just doing that apologetic work in the classroom all the time and it just stays in the classroom, then it's not serving its intended purpose in terms of uh, reaching a lost world. And so, uh, but then what we also discovered through this is that the challenge really motivates young people, right? We, we, we think our young people need to know theology and apologetics. Okay. So how we, how we're going to, how, how are we going to motivate them to actually study that? Right. You can hand them a theology a systematic theology book and say, here, read this. You need to know this. And one out of, you know, half a million evangelical kids <laughs> yeah. is going to take you up on that one. <laughs> but I guarantee you what I've seen over the last, you know, uh, gosh, 17 years that I've been doing these trips, 18 years, is that you let a student get challenged. 
you let a student get ripped apart by a Mormon yeah. <laughs> uh, or, an, or an atheist or a Berkeley student, they come back to you motivated, you know, and they say, oh, my gosh, I didn't know how to answer this. And they said this and I didn't. They, they pointed out this scripture and I had no answer to it. And it seems to support Mormonism. Then there's this internal motivation and drive that starts to arise in them. And then they come to you and ask you for that systematic theology book, right? <laughs> yeah. And so it's, it's hugely motivational. And then it also gets young people uh, sharing the gospel. And what I found is that the vast majority of young people in our churches um, are, just have never even shared the gospel with a friend. Uh, they've never... They've never done that. And on, on these trips, it's often it's the first time. And what we see happen is that uh, they get lit up, right? I mean, you, you start living your life for the cause of the gospel, and uh, there's almost nothing that will light up your relationship with Christ and, and, and light a fire under you and, and, and give you passion for the, the cause of Christ than actually living on mission for him. And so we see that with young people. Uh and so it's just, it's so fun to watch. And it just, it's helped me to understand that more and more of our activity needs to be done outside of the four walls of the church, outside of a building and really engaging the world. And that's when, uh, all this, you know, theoretical stuff really hit the, the rubber hits the road and, um, it becomes very practical. And, uh, I just, it's amazing what happens on these trips. So if parents want to learn more about these trips, uh, is, is there a website they can go to to find out uh, information? Yeah. So uh, our website is maventruth.com. Um, the, uh, we don't have a ton of information up right at this moment, but this fall... Uh, you know, we just launched the ministry in September. Mm -hmm. This fall, we are uh, building our website. We'll be adding more information. We'll be adding more uh, content. Uh, if anyone wants m uh, more specific information, they can go onto the Maven website, and uh, there are different links at the top of the page and uh, there's a contact us link and what they can do is they can um, make a request for more information uh, also I would just throw this out if, if someone just wants to email us they can email us at info 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 at maventruth.com and say hey I want more information on these uh, mission trips and we will send them information and actually a little video trailer of the trip so I mean it's it's one thing to describe it. It's another thing to actually see it and to go on it. It's almost like I can't do justice to, to, yeah. to how incredible these trips are. Great. And so as we close out today, tell us about your new ministry and uh, specifically why you chose the word maven. What, what does maven mean? Yeah, well, we are, uh, we are a youth-focused ministry. So we have two target audiences. One is junior high, high school, and college students. We want to help young people uh, to, uh, to, to know truth uh, and to defend it. And that's a vital, important part of what we're going to do. But it's not, it's not the end-all, be-all. And that's where I think sometimes those of us in the apologetics world make a mistake of letting that be the end-all, be-all. And then I watch people kind of burn out on apologetics. Uh, we want to help young people know truth, but then we also want them to apply that to the rest of their lives. And so we also want to help them pursue goodness and create beauty. 
right? So we've taken these kind of classic transcendental categories, truth, goodness, and beauty, and we want to help young people know and live the truth of Christianity. But then our second target audience is helping the people who are discipling the next generation. So we want to come alongside parents and youth pastors and pastors and um, grandparents and Christian educators to do the same thing with their young people. Um, and so part of that is rewrapping this for a new generation. I mean, if you think, I, I've been working with young people for a long time now, and you see some of the changes in this current generation. They are media-saturated. They are image-based. They are driven by their feelings much more than uh, thinking. And so how do you reach that kid? How do you reach a kid who will get onto a website and simply if the design of the website seems outdated or clunky, uh, he'll, he'll, he'll bounce, right? Mm. He's out of there. He's gone in 10 seconds. Mm. It doesn't matter how good your content is. It's if it's, if it's wrapped in a way that, uh, that doesn't appeal to them, they're out. And now look, we can bemoan that and complain about it and say, ah, kids these days, right? Or we can work really hard to reach that kid and to to put more effort and resources into repackaging the truth for this next generation. So that's what we want to do. And that's one of the reasons why we, we, we came up with the name Maven. Because we wanted to pick a name that was not apologetic-y, you know, mm-hmm. if you know what I mean. It, we yeah. didn't want it to sound overly academic because that just – that doesn't appeal to your typical uh, evangelical kid in your typical evangelical church. And uh, But we wanted also a name that, that, that helped communicate what we want to be about. And a maven is someone who has knowledge – in a particular area, and then passes that knowledge on to others. It's one who knows the truth and passes it on. So you may have uh, sometimes the word is used in like uh, in the context of uh, like a fashion maven or a finance maven, right? They have mm. knowledge of you know these these areas. Well, we want to we want to be a maven for young people when it comes to following Jesus when it comes to Christianity. We want to help pass on the knowledge of Christ to these young people. And um, then we want to help them become mavens as well. We want to help them do the same thing. And we want to come alongside parents and, and leaders and help them to be mavens with their work with young people. So that's how we came up with the name. And you know, part of it was you know running it by young people as well. Like, what do you think? How, you know, how does this... How does this ring to you? What is? How does this feel to you? What do you think about this name? And uh, uh, you know, and, and a lot of young people just thought, I really like this, and and so we just that, that's some of the thinking behind the name Maven. But that's what it means: as one who knows the truth and passes it on to others. I love it. That's I'm so excited to see what God does through your ministry in the coming years. So the website again is Maven Truth. Dot com And don't forget to grab uh, Brett and John Stone Street's book, A Practical Guide to Culture, as well. Brett, thanks so much for being on the show today. Oh, thanks for having me. If you enjoyed listening to this podcast, you can go to alisachilders.com and click the subscribe button or you can simply subscribe to the Elisa Childers podcast on iTunes.